This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Even though it was 20 years ago, it's one of those cases that you never really forget because I was so initially wrong. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. In the fall of 2002, when 21-year-old Amanda Zhao went missing from Burnaby, B.C., the authorities were stumped. The RCMP said the international student from China was, quote, squeaky clean. She was an excellent student, and she was described by friends as kind, bold, and independent. Amanda had come all the way from China to B.C. with her best friend, Julia, to study economics and computer science. The two girls had promised Amanda's parents that they would take care of each other, and now Julia was racked with guilt. Amanda's boyfriend, Ang Lee, was also distraught. He'd been going on Chinese-language radio pleading for help to find his girlfriend. But 11 days after Amanda went missing, her body was discovered. Eventually, the police would make an arrest. And for Lori Colbert, who had been covering the case for the Vancouver Sun, the arrest would call into question not only how the police handled Amanda's case, but her own instincts as well. Laurie, welcome back to the pod. Oh, it's lovely to be here again. So you finally get word of the fact that this young girl is missing. What did you do? Who did you talk to? Well, the first thing we did was we headed out to Coquitlam to the college where she was um, attending to improve her English with the hope of eventually attending university. And we met with her best friend, Julia Zhang. She was a very soft-spoken, very scared young woman who was extremely worried about her best friend. Julia told us that she and Amanda had met in high school and that they both had a lifelong dream to come to Canada to learn English to eventually be able to live in this country and work here and when the girls turned 19 they told their parents in Beijing about their plans and Amanda's parents in particular were really really nervous Amanda was their only child they didn't know anything about her coming to Canada they were just really worried that something might go wrong so the two young women had to spend quite a bit of time convincing Amanda's parents that they would be okay. And they really promised that they would look after each other while they were here. And you did talk to Amanda's parents too, did you not? 
We did. My colleague Peg Fong conducted a phone interview in Mandarin with her parents in Beijing, and it was extremely emotional. The parents told us that, you know, they didn't have a lot of money and that they scraped together everything they could and they borrowed from family and friends in order to send Amanda to Canada. We know that Amanda was very frugal when she was here. You know, her friend told us that she would eat potatoes and rice almost every day because she was very careful about not spending her parents' money beyond her absolute basic necessities. The police didn't tell the parents that she was missing for multiple days. uh, And when the news finally came to them, they were devastated. The mom told us that she had had a mental collapse when she heard her daughter was missing. And Beyond the fact that she was just grief-stricken about her daughter being missing, she didn't understand why police had waited so long to tell her. Amanda's father said to us, why is this happening to us? She's an only child and we have no one else. She was our hope. She was our future. So devastating. And it feels like she was so vulnerable. I mean, she was in a country, she was learning English, but obviously English was still a struggle for her. Her parents didn't have a lot of money. It just seems like such a terrible situation for everybody, but her parents especially. She was described as being a very trusting young woman who, you know, didn't see the evil in other people. And, you know, her parents, with her being an only child, have put so much hope and so much expectations on her. And, you know, just she was just described as an all-around lovely, trusting person. Amanda's boyfriend was also an international student from China. She had met him about eight months before she disappeared and moved into a basement apartment in the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby with him and his cousin uh, several months before she disappeared. The basement apartment was in a modest house in a suburban neighborhood and it was a small apartment, two bedrooms, and we knocked on the door and Ang Lee opened the door and welcomed us in and um, we walked into the apartment to interview him. You know, as a reporter, you often have protectors on, you know, you often find yourself in situations where you're interviewing potentially sketchy people who you think to yourself, yeah, I better be careful here. I I want to worry about my own personal safety. You know, you do as much as you can to get the story, but you always have those kind of spidey senses that, you know, just to be wary of your surroundings and you know, to be cautious with what you're doing and who you're speaking with. I didn't have any of those feelings when I walked into Ang Lee's apartment. He was just very open and he answered every question that I posed to him. And then at the end, he sent me multiple photos of him and Amanda together, um, pictures of them with their arms around each other, standing by the ocean, pictures of them hugging each other. And he wanted to share these photos and wanted to tell us about his girlfriend and expressed extreme grief about her being missing. But also he portrayed having extreme guilt about not being with her the night that he said she disappeared. What did he tell you happened to her the night of her disappearance? 
So he told us that on October the 9th that the two of them had had dinner together in the basement apartment and that after dinner, he and his cousin roommate had homework to do, but that the three of them were out of cooking oil. So Amanda said she was going to walk to the nearby grocery store and Ang Lee said that he offered to drive her and that she insisted that she would go on her own because he had homework to do. And he said that that was the last time that he saw her. He said that about two hours after she left and she hadn't returned home, that he and his roommate drove around the neighborhood to look for her. And he said when they couldn't find her, he reported her missing to police. And um, he expressed to me multiple times that he felt extreme guilt that he hadn't gone to the grocery store with her. And I believed him. He seemed sincerely remorseful and he seemed so determined to speak with police and try to find out what happened to her. After my interview, I went back to the newsroom and at six o'clock, my colleagues and I gathered around the six o'clock news as we always did to see what the TV networks were leading with. And they, of course, had a story about Amanda being missing and they had flashed a photo of the boyfriend up on the screen, uh, you know, mentioning that he had been the one to report her missing to police. And I said to uh, a veteran justice columnist who I work with. Oh, I interviewed him this afternoon and, you know, he's so sad about her going missing and it was a really, you know, powerful interview and I'm really excited to write the story. And my colleague Ian Mulgrew turned to me and he said, the boyfriend did it. And I was outraged. I said, like, Ian, he didn't do it. You've never met him. He was the kindest, sweetest, nicest guy. And Ian Mulgrew said to me, boyfriend always does it. The boyfriend did it. And I refused to believe it until several days later when all of the puzzle pieces started falling together. A few days after Lori interviewed Ang Lee, a group of hikers found Amanda's body, stuffed inside a suitcase in a remote area outside of Vancouver. That night, the police went back to Lee's apartment. Reporters asked again and again over the days that we knew that she was missing whether or not her boyfriend was a suspect. And the police said over and over again that he was not a suspect, that they had no suspects. So here they were, after her body was found, searching his apartment again. And within days of her body being found, Ang Lee hopped on an airplane and returned to China. Was there any indication that Lee you know, was violent with Amanda in the past? Do we have any sense of that relationship? I spoke in May of 2003 with the landlord, the woman who owned the small house in Burnaby with the basement suite where Amanda lived with the two cousins. And she said that the three of them appeared to have a lovely relationship, that there was no signs of yelling or violence in the basement below. She said, in fact, that the night before she went missing, Amanda and Ang Lee had a romantic dinner at a Coquitlam restaurant. And she said that 
the three of them seemed happy living in the basement, that they were polite, that she never had any worries about them, that she treated Ang Lee and his cousin like her own sons, um, that in fact she cooked for them sometimes before Amanda moved in, and that there was no indication of violence in the home. The authorities eventually charged Lee in absentia. They didn't know exactly where he was, but they did think he was guilty of first-degree murder. But Canada doesn't have an extradition treaty with China, so there was no way to get Lee back to stand trial. And what was that like for you? I mean, you were in his apartment. You met both of the men that the police say were responsible for quite a heinous crime. And you also believed him. Yeah, I often think back about this case, even though it was 20 years ago. It's one of those cases that you never really forget because I was so initially wrong about someone who I had interviewed. And you pride yourself a little bit as a reporter about having good judgment of people, um, when to believe people and when to maybe double check the things that they're telling you. And so it has guided me quite a bit, I would say, going forward about the cliche of not judging a book by its cover, about not assuming that the way someone's presenting themselves is necessarily true. And it also has made me so much more cautious about the places I go into and the situations that I've put myself into as a woman. And at the time, as a young reporter, you know, I was walking into the apartment of someone who was eventually going to be convicted of murder. And I wasn't worried about my own well-being. And in hindsight, that was fairly foolish. What would you do differently today? I think maybe the one thing I've done better now is I let people know where I am. So You know, I'd like to say that I've become smarter, and I certainly hope I have been. But at the end of the day, we're pretty driven by getting good stories. So I guess it's a fine balance that you learn between keeping safe and and needing to be able to speak with the people for the story. Sounds like you're also more cynical now. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing for a reporter? I think it's something that reporters learn. You know, we cover a lot of grim stories often and we speak to people who aren't great people often and you know I'd like to think that I'm not cynical when it comes to interviewing families or victims or just regular people who I need to speak to for regular stories but you learn when you're dealing with crime stories to be a bit more guarded I think and to examine the situation perhaps a bit better as you continue with this profession. For years after the murder, the case was tangled up in diplomatic negotiations. Despite not having an extradition treaty, Canadian politicians wanted Chinese authorities to send Lee back to Canada to be tried here, which is what Amanda's parents wanted too. But in the end, Canada agreed to allow Lee to stand trial in China, as long as China promised to waive the death penalty. And so years and years and years after Amanda was murdered, Ang Lee went to trial in Beijing. And there he testified that his girlfriend died after a pillow fight 
went astray. Now, of course, I wasn't able to cover that trial, so I'm just telling you that from the stories that I've read that were written by reporters in Beijing. We do know from the autopsy results in British Columbia that her cause of death was strangulation. So it's hard for me to tell you whether or not she died as a result of a pillow fight or not, but that's what was sworn into the record at the trial in China. Wow. And so what happened to him in that trial? So initially he was convicted of first degree murder, but after the evidence was reviewed, the court in China reduced that conviction to manslaughter and vastly reduced the amount of time that he had to serve, which, again, was just um, a shocking blow to Amanda's parents who, if you think about it, waited too many days to find out their daughter was missing and then waited too many months for arrests in the case and then watched a court in their own country initially decide that Ang Lee was responsible for first-degree murder and then reduce his prison time. So just a heartbreaking case all the way around for the parents of this only child. In 2012, almost a decade after Amanda's death, Lee was arrested and convicted in China. He'd spend only four years in prison. You know, sometimes this career is so hard, isn't it? Because it feels like at the end of this story, the vulnerable girl just is gone and there's so little anybody has taken to be accountable to her. How do you kind of cope with, at the end of the day, sometimes these stories really do sort of take the wind out of you, don't they? Well, they do because, you know, when you watch Law and Order or some kind of television show like that, it feels like everything is wrapped up, that if a terrible crime happens, there's someone's held accountable and we get answers. And I feel like in this case, you know, I think back to the, there's one particular photo that Ang Lee gave me of Amanda Zhao where she's smiling and she's dimples in her cheeks and her index fingers are pointing at the dimples and she just looks so happy and young and innocent. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, despite all of the many, many stories I've written about this case, we don't truly know how she died that night. You know, we have, I suppose, someone who's been held accountable in court with a manslaughter charge, but that wasn't the outcome that the parents wanted. And at the end of the day, it took a decade for there to be any form of justice. And I would argue that the justice ended up being pretty weak in the end. And certainly, we continue to have so many questions that haven't been answered. Shortly after this conversation with Lori, she ran into her boss in the hallway of the offices of the Vancouver Sun. And he told her that he'd just received a very strange email from someone claiming to be Ang Lee. He forwarded me the email, um, and in the email, the writer claims that he is innocent of the murder of Amanda Zhao. I have to caution to say that I have no way to prove that it was indeed Ang Lee who wrote this email, but the email writer who was claiming to be Ang Lee also said he had been used as a bargaining chip for hostage diplomacy. Those were his words. 
After his release in 2016, Lee moved to New Zealand, where he's been trying to seek refugee status. Earlier this year, he did an interview with a New Zealand newspaper and said that the murder trial had been a political setup and believed that Amanda could still be alive and, quote, walking around somewhere. I don't think we can draw any valid conclusions from them. I think we need to take them with a huge dose of skepticism. I'm now in the process of trying to reach him and we'll see what he has to say. So who knows what happened in this case, but it seems to continue to rear its ugly head even to this day. This episode of True Crime Byline is produced by Emily Morantz and Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Mixing and sound design by Philip Wilson. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica. Special thanks to Harold Monroe, the editor-in-chief of the Vancouver Sun, and Aaron Valwa, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media. Post Media.